0: What's up, friends? Renee from Big Stick Energy here. We have another episode coming at you today. This episode is with JJ and Kim Vanette. They are basically couple goals, uh, what we all could probably aspire to in terms of having someone that shreds just as hard as you do. JJ, we talked about how he got into ski patrolling in Revelstoke and this guy knows the mountain like the back of his hand. It's pretty awesome. You can check out a lot of the videos that he posts. He can find a pastache on probably any given day. And uh, yeah, makes me a little bit jealous. Kim is a beautiful skier. I love watching him ski. And she is getting into the guiding world of things. So there's a lot of really cool cool insights that she has and also that they both have about backcountry travel and picking partners, mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of really awesome content in this episode, and we will get straight into it after a couple of ads. Thank you to Deuter for being a sponsor of our show. I cannot mention these backpacks without (laughs) telling a hilarious story of a backpack that my dad had from Deuter. And he has i think finally gotten it back but i'm not sure because my mom my sister and i all found this backpack to be so comfortable that we took it from him and would often borrow it without necessarily giving it back and i don't think he saw this pack for years because the rest of us always wanted to hike with it so that was my intro to deuter i have two bags currently from them one for biking one for skiing A couple highlights from those that I love is the Freerider backpacks. Opening from back. Ski pack for ski touring. If it does not open from the back, I cannot have it. So that's like one of the single most best qualities of a ski pack is having that back open. As well as a separate pack for your Abbey gear that you can easily get to. This pack has both of those. Super comfy. The other one I have is the flight backpack for biking. I use it almost every day to ride to and from work because it fits all of my lunch and nursing gear and everything when I'm on the bike. And then um, because I have the 14 liter, it's great if I'm doing like a longer day on the trails. So super comfy, fits really nice on the hips and uh, Deuter, D-E-U-T-E-R go check them out. It is time for the Out of Bounds Sports Nutrition Tip of the Week, sponsored by Mirror Energy, the real food energy gel made for the mountains that doesn't taste like butt. So tip this week is that athletes need more carbs during big mountain days. Did you know that if you're training for touring for over an hour, you need to start adding in replacement carbs? That's because your body is using up your body's carbohydrate storage, which is called glycogen, as energy for your training. If you run out of these carbs, you're headed on a one-way ticket straight to bonk town. So how can you prevent the bonk without upsetting your stomach? Mirror Energy's fast-burning gels like strawberry and blueberry bergamot, or my favorite right now, red raspberry are specially made to be high in easily digestible carbs with less fiber and fat to slow you down. They're super tasty and much better than last season's half-eaten pocket bar. Gross. Especially if it's a cliff Bar. Those dry up. Nasty. Mirror Energy products use simple ingredients and whole foods to support long-term health for humans and for the planet. You do not have to be a pro to feel like a pro. Use the discount code out of bounds for 15% off. Tell them blueberry bergamot is your favorite color in your order note, and they promise to throw in something super special. Does anybody else have a mom or dad that always insists on reminding you that you should have warm clothing in your vehicle at all times through the winter? Just in case anything happens, you break down, etc.? Well, Funny enough, this is exactly how Rumpel Blankets was born. The founders of Rumpel found themselves up a dirt road with a vehicle that wouldn't start and they hunkered down in their sleeping bags for the time being to keep warm and realized we should be this warm and comfy all of the time. Let's make something that is packable, eco-friendly and use it in your house, use it at a picnic, in the park, on your couch, camping, after a big ski day, toss it in the vehicle so you have something warm. There is no end to the possibilities of where you can bring your rumple Blanket. I love the OG original puffy blanket. You can bring this blanket everywhere. It's made from 60 recycled plastic bottles, which is probably the coolest thing about it. Rumple Blankets, R-U-M-P-L, check them out. Thank you for hanging in there. New episode, episode 53. Kim and JJ Vanette dropping in three, two, one. Kim and JJ, introduce yourselves, ABCs, one, two, threes, short or long, however you want to do it.
1: I'm uh, I'm JJ Vanette. I live in Revelstoke. I've been here since 2008, so it's uh, coming up 15 years of being in being in Revelstoke, BC. um, I'm a professional skier, and I run my own drafting design company where I focus on high-end residential homes.
2: And I'm Kim Vanette. We're not brother and sister. Um, We are actually married, and we have skied together for a very long time. And uh, I'm also a skier. I do the professional skier thing and now been guiding more often than I used to. And also have a job working in sustainability programming and like to dabble in that in the sports industry as well. So yeah, lots of different touch points on the ski industry.
0: How long have you guys been together?
1: That's a good question. Oh, come
2: on. I was looking to you to see 15 <laughs> years. <laughs>
1: well, I say we met the in 2007, but she aptly corrects me to February
2: 2008. It was absolutely february 2009 um but yeah but recently um jeff schmuck accused us of being brother and sister so i thought we should just call that out right off the bat which i thought was hilarious because we've known jeff for a while
0: that is i i know jeff as well and that's pretty funny
2: <laughs> weird that we give brother and sister vibes jeff thanks
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you guys like, is there a good story there? Like, how did did you meet skiing? Like, how does that fit into it? Because skiing has like, in some ways become a big part of your relationship. But I, I know from filming with you guys that there's been like huge chunks of time where you haven't been able to ski with each other, which is also interesting.
1: We, uh, we actually met through a mutual friend. So a friend of ours was coming to Revelstoke to ski and Kim was on that trip with her. And basically I was introduced as the guy that lived in town that was going to show them around and show them good time because I knew the mountain and I was a ski patroller at the time.
2: So I showed up in town after a long drive and had a few beers and, uh, talked a big game about my skiing ability. And, uh, JJ was pretty sick of my attitude and, uh, we went skiing together the next day and he was like, yeah, yeah, this girl can ski. Sure. So we skied right off the top of the lift at, uh, Revelstoke Mountain Resort this was like back when there were no tracks and stuff and it was sweet and JJ was like clipping along and he just a glimpse out of his eye and he was like holy crap she's keeping up
1: well that's her version <laughs> <laughs> yeah and my version is um, I was like wow this girl talks a big game um, but you can't just take everybody everywhere right out of the gates because you could take up somewhere bad real quick And so I was like, yeah, we're just going to go down here. And I remember getting a little bit of flack, like, oh, this is, like, easy terrain. We can go to the fun stuff. And I was like, no, no, it's just going to be good. This will be good skiing. And I do remember skiing down and kind of looking over my shoulder and being like, oh, there's some K2 skis there.
0: Wow. kept
1: up. (laughs) And then
0: he takes her to the real good stuff. (laughs) 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 But I'm <laughs> well it kind of reminds me actually a little bit of i don't know if you guys have heard elise sogstad and cody townsend how like they met and the first time they went skiing as told by cody um, yeah. i think it was in a podcast somewhere or something but he was saying that they went skiing together and he's like trying to show off and he hits this cliff and, and lands it and skis out and he turns around and she's there hitting that same cliff yeah. stomps it <laughs> skis out and he's like damn yeah (laughs) (laughs) so it was basically that it's a big deal for us girls that these boys can keep up isn't it it is actually it is it really it really narrows the dating field if that's your standard (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: well and then it's funny because you fast forwarded a couple weeks from like when we would first met and I get a call that Kim's coming back to town. Her dad's in town. They're doing a little road trip skiing. And I was naive enough to be like, oh, yeah, she really likes me because she called me up. And then if you kind of like step back and like oversee the whole situation, I'm just the only guy she knew that lived in Revelstoke. I needed a tour guide.
2: <laughs> That's what it really came down to. And then he impressed my dad. And my dad was like, you should date a guy like that. And Yeah. So I got roped in.
1: Yeah, where are you living Kim? before I got hers? Yeah,
2: that's actually true.
0: <laughs> yeah, Where were you living Kim that you're driving back and forth? I lived in
2: Calgary and then I did that for a while because that was again, yeah, 2009. I didn't live here permanently in Revelstoke until 2012. So did the winter season in Revelstoke and then I would move back and work and make some money so I could go ski again for another winter season and did that for three years before I moved here permanently.
0: That sounds about right. I feel like that's how a lot of people end up doing it is just spending your, like your summer, you have to, if you're going to ski bum, you have to make money in the summer. There's no way around it because if you want to ski in the winter, it's really, really hard to get a job that works with that. And like, I guess JJ kind of had it because he worked on patrol and I've been there. You get to ski a lot, even if it's not for yourself, you ski a lot.
1: Well, you, you're on a mountain a lot. I don't know that you ski a lot and- well, it's, you it's can
0: always, if you really want to. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That,
1: that's always tough too, right? Because, and you don't
0: make any money anyway. So you still have to work in the summer.
1: Yeah. And then it's that's tough too, because it's, you know, you you're working, you know, four days a week, ten hour days. So in your days off, you want to go adventure, but at some point in time you have to be able to go get the mail and do your laundry and buy groceries.
2: But you were in your bag because it was so much
0: work doing patrol. Patrollers work hard. Yeah. Thanks, patrollers, you guys rock. They do work hard. Yeah. I, I remember when I first started patrol, I was completely wrecked for the first, I think like the first three weeks straight, my body just hurt every single day. I was so done. I don't think I knew what I was getting into because I wasn't even like that strong of a skier when I started either. I got way better at skiing through patrolling because you just are on your skis so much. You're lifting heavy things. You're skiing down with heavy things and my first like just about a month of patrolling I was so wrecked every day I would come home I wouldn't even eat dinner I would just go straight to bed like I started having to bring myself dinner and I'd have to take a day to meal prep for my days off and then I would have to bring dinner with me so I could eat it on the bus ride home because I would get home I would just go to bed like that was it that was my day it was done and if I didn't do that I didn't eat dinner which when you that many calories is just a recipe for disaster. No
1: oh, yeah. Well, like, so I would, you know, as the patroller, like, you're the last one, first one on the mountain and last one off. And so Kim would be in town and she would get up and ski for the day and then head off mountain, you know, 2.30, 3.30, whatever time. But of course, I'm going to be another hour and a half or so before I get home. And so from that perspective, she'd, you know, have a shower, relax, and then, prep dinner and so i'd come home to dinners made which was awesome but it would be like yeah so we made a big lasagna you know so you can have some dinner and i can have some dinner and then we could have some leftovers and
2: then you just crush the whole thing
1: and then i'd crush a whole lasagna just
2: unappreciatively consuming calories
0: you have to though <laughs> i yeah i got to a point where i had to like i was more or less vegetarian when i started on patrol yes. and i got to a point where I had to actually start getting meat back into my diet because I could not keep weight on. Gee, and I this just is needed a real thing. I I'm needed the protein. As well. I feel because, great in my
2: normal life, but yeah. holy moly, what do you eat for lunches? People, write
0: in, let us know. Because I found <laughs> that I was just like trying to like slam protein powder, which just gets really old really fast. And it's not a sustainable or like tasteful way mm-hmm. to be and I remember when I was patrolling I just got to a point where I had to just start introducing some meat back into my dinners because yeah, I was yeah. just I was so exhausted and I was just losing weight mm-hmm. and didn't need to be losing weight that's,
2: that's been a really real thing for me when I worked at lodges because I, I, I so appreciate other folks cooking for me but uh, as a vegetarian sometimes they don't understand the the nutritional requirements and then you know if I'm eating lettuce it's a big difference than if I've got a little bit more like content and substance. So yeah, you get tired real quick. Well, it's so
1: funny because so many people and just you, you go, yeah, you're a vegetarian. Great. We'll have something for you. And basically they don't make you a vegetarian meal. They just make you a meatless Take the meal. Meat up. And so it's like, yeah. here's, it's like here's potato, your salad here's every day. <laughs> lettuce and uh, rice.
2: No, no, that most, for the most part, like the, chefs and whatnot that are out there there especially when they're catering to the guests that's sweet but sometimes when your staff it's uh,
0: less of a priority
2: <laughs>
0: yeah like luckily now that I have a lower activity level I've been able to get back to a mostly plant-based diet and there is still like a little bit of cheating that does happen here or there but like most most of the time is plant-based and I, I think that that works for me like I'm I'm Happy with that and the effort that goes behind it. But I know what you mean. Like, if you're going to do any kind of plant based diet correctly, like, you have to know how to choose your proteins. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to be putting quinoa and beans. And I, I can't do lentils because they make me bloated as fuck. But <laughs> great option for a lot of people, <laughs> to- like tofu, like different kinds of tofu. Like, I don't know if you guys have um, soy curls. Mm. I've gotten really into those. Cool. Cool.
1: (laughs) I I still like meat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I don't eat any meat because that would not be true because I do still sometimes. But uh, yeah, it was really hard when I was patrolling. We sort of got into it like for
2: climate reasons because we were trying to have a control over where our food came from and keeping it local and that sort of thing. And we have a really awesome butcher shop in Revelstoke. And so we were able to get that sort of thing quite often. And then because I was doing the Lodge Life thing, um, I had less understanding of my footprint and that sort of thing. So I was like, okay, I'll go vegetarian for a little bit. And I actually my body actually responds really well to it, given that I do have enough calories and nutrients. Um, So I felt really good and I've continued with it. And so that's been about four years now. But yeah.
0: Uh Kim, I would love to dive into a little bit of the ski guiding world. And do you? Would you? Would you love to? <laughs> well, not for me personally, but I think it's really cool that you do it.
2: <laughs> oh boy, thank you.
0: Yeah, you know um, what? Hey, for all those free
2: riders out there that think that backcountry education is uh important for getting to sweet lines um eventually when you compile enough education you're unknowingly ready for ski guiding <laughs> and that was kind of my route i compiled a bunch of uh certifications and then started tail guiding and then got more and more and more experience and now i've been well mostly tail guiding since 2011 so i've accumulated enough experience to be in the association of canadian mountain guides apprentice program this year so i'm working on that um yeah. So balancing ski guiding with free riding with
0: office job and it's it's a busy year so far. So you started accumulating avalanche courses just for your own ability to go skiing mm-hmm. cool zones in the backcountry. Yeah, cute idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like that's how most of us start, right? <laughs> you want to go out and do it safe, so you start with AST one, then you get AST two, and then I guess at what point did you? keep moving on in courses and like feel like you needed the extra education i think is a great question because i mean if you're a free rider like what was the point you hit where you're like okay i've done ast2 i want to do ops or i want to start doing mm -hmm. these like actual guiding courses where did you hit that line i mean in canada after after the recreational
2: courses at the time so this would have been like i said you know 2010 ish um there weren't the free ride camps that exist and there weren't there wasn't so many guides who were spending time with recreationists in the backcountry and teaching us about safety snow science type stuff so i went immediately into the ops 1 um i did ops 1 in 2010 um and i happened to be a geologist by training and so snow science was right up my alley so i could nerd out on that stuff pretty pretty easily um so i just sort of I, I enjoyed it. And then I happened to at the time I took that course at Monashie Powder Snowcats and really loved it up there and really liked the owners and uh, came out the following season, did a practicum. And then I did a full time um, tail guiding gig with them right off the bat in my, the beginning of my career. So it was sort of a pro- progression of accumulating those courses and also being introduced to really cool places. Right. And just wanting to be there more.
0: So ultimately the ops one course kind of opened that door for you. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I had, uh, I had a uh, first aid
2: courses while I'm an emergency medical responder. And so, yeah, you, you need to have the ops one and a minimum 80 hour first aid and then you can sort of get into the tail guiding
0: world. Yeah. Which I guess a lot of ski patrollers also would have those certifications. You need your 80 hour first aid and then you do your AC1, your ac 2 and then lots of patrollers will go ahead and get their ops one because you want to start being able to throw bombs. Yeah. So. You have to have ops one here. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it ends up giving people options if they know that that's something they can do. Um, I guess mm-hmm. I just like for me, I didn't realize so much like what the routes were when I was skiing a lot. I didn't know how to go from AST two to actually Mm -hmm. working. Like I saw the ski patrol routes for sure. Like how you move up in ski patrol. But for me, I was like, well, you know, I kind of know how much these guys are making and I can hardly cover my bills. So is this really worth the time and money?
1: (laughs) You mean they don't make millions of dollars? Mm -hmm. You mean they barely make above minimum wage? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I made thirteen dollars an hour when I patrolled in um, twenty seventeen. Whoa, that wasn't that long ago.
1: Yeah, I made fourteen dollars an hour. Yeah, I think
0: it was around then. And these or are twenty sixteen. Yeah, Canadian dollars. <laughs> yeah, <it's> Canadian dollars.
1: <laughs> Canadian dollars.
0: <laughs> um, sorry.
1: No, that's. I was gonna say yeah. Like when uh, I remember when I started patrolling, that was I want to say it was like. $13 or $13.50 to start. And then after two or three years, I was up to $14. So whew, big raises.
0: Yeah. couple of years experience and you're making 14 bucks an hour. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's, That's actually thousands of dollars for educational progression.
3: Absolutely. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like the bang for buck there is there's <laughs> the investment for what you're paid. And also like the risk you have to take, like the expertise, not to mention purchasing all of your gear, like,
1: Oh, don't worry. You get pro deals. So, you know, you oh, get, yeah. Yeah. So, so
3: pro deals. <laughs> yeah. But what if I give you a code? Will you do it then? Will, you check, Yeah. It's like, I still have to pay money to get the stuff though. <laughs> it's like the codes do help, but at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know. I feel like the responsibility and the liability as a patroller as well. Like you're there's a lot there. They definitely should make more money. Agreed. Mm-hmm. What are lifties getting paid? Probably that much. Well,
1: just just a little less than patrollers. Okay, so just
3: a little bit more than patrollers. Cool, 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 cool. No doubt, no doubt. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but I will say when I worked there, the lifties were not allowed to ride like hard, mm-hmm. like a black run or harder when they were working because they that's weren't allowed case. to get hurt. So you have, they would get to go down the mountain a few times a day, but they had to do it on a blue run. Yeah. Can't get so. hurt on a blue run. That's the rule. Ironically, more people get hurt on those runs than the black runs, but yeah, for sure. Just...
1: Well, and the lifties that decide to, you know, I'm just going to go do this one lap and then do get hurt and then you end up having to go and pick them off the mountain and it's like you weren't supposed to be there. Those are our dogs.
0: Dogs say hey. (laughs) Someone's outside. (laughs) (laughs) You guys
2: don't seem (laughs) phased. That's what they do. Um 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 Back to the uh, like the progression of courses and stuff. Um, in 2013, I took the Alpine Finishing School from She Jumps, which was super sweet. It was a uh, I, I think they still do it. It was a uh, uh, mountaineering course, the intro to mountaineering. So that was like the beginning of like ski mountaineering techniques and navigation and that sort of stuff. And I was super fortunate to meet. Um, one of the guides that was one of the creators of that program. And, um, it was really inspired by her and started working with her quite a bit. And, uh, I think that also sort of led me into guiding. So I think some of these, these courses that are available, um, through, you know, not-for-profits like She Jumps that are creating access for women in sport or, you know, Marty Schaefer's Kapow camps that he offers are super sweet for helping, um, skiers and snowboarders to understand the mountaineering techniques that are generally hard to approach and like hard to learn outside of that sort of instruction. So in the last sort of five, 10 years, that sort of stuff has become more available. And I think it's made it easier to probably stay out of ski guiding because you can just, you can just pay for that education and not be super in deep in over your head with uh, the, you know, the
0: progression that it takes to
2: get the guiding education. (laughs)
0: And that's super true because like you bring up Marty Schaefer and I've done one of his camps and mm. I have spoken with Marty about the fact that you do AST one you do ASC2, you ski with your buddies, but I just felt like for myself, and I still feel this way actually, is that then you just have this gap of like wanting to ski really cool things, knowing that it's dangerous but like trying to figure out how to tease all the little things about the terrain and the conditions and the weather and like what slope you're on and what the avalanche forecast is and taking all that information and putting it into okay well can I ski this or not right and so I did um, one of his pillow camps because I was like well I want to ski pillows but like I kind of want to know one how to do it (laughs) because it's hard and I definitely have not come anywhere near figuring that out but Two, like I want to get into these zones and what do I need to know when I'm skiing them? And like, I still don't have all those answers, but it was like my intro into it. And um, yeah, just like trying to find education beyond that for the recreationalist that doesn't necessarily want to take an Ops 1. And he does do a course, which I've been looking at for a few years and just trying to make the dates work where it's like mega blast, I think he calls it. Um, But it would just be really cool to see more and more places take that kind of mindset where they take people who are strong skiers who have backcountry experience and find ways to up that level of avalanche knowledge without Mm -hmm. getting like, I don't like too technical about it, I guess, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, like still keeping it for the recreationalist. Mm -hmm where you're not going to be like necessarily like forecasting, but you are kind of for yourself. I mean, of course you have to.
2: And I think, um, this season in particular, you know, there's a lot of professional skiers and a lot of ski guides and a lot of folks in the ski industry that are talking about our snowpack. Um, and it's interesting because our snowpack is worse than we've that I've seen in the last 15 years. And a lot of folks that have been around in the industry for a really long time are comparing it to 2003 and then comparing it to, you know, the nineties. So to me, that's sort of unprecedented what we're dealing with. And so it's not like stepping back the way that we've stepped back in other, in other years. And some of the best messaging that I think I've seen um, across social media has to do with like, you know what, maybe this just isn't the year. Right. And it's not about like, whether it's technical or not, it's just like, this is a real tough one. Maybe don't even try.
0: Yeah. And honestly, that's why I've been loving sledding so much. I know it is not environmentally friendly for a lot of reasons, but it's something that I could do on flat ground and have a really good time. (laughs) And sometimes when you're scared of the snowpack, you really don't want to get too far off of flat ground (laughs) or resort skiing. Resort skiing is also great for that. But it is cool to see more noise on social media instead of, you know, so often we see pro skiers and they're just posting these dream lines that they ski and you don't get the backstory or the lead up or anything else that relates to it. You just see them skiing these cool lines. And I think it creates, uh, at least for me, I see so many people who get kind of like, they get stuck on the dream line and they don't know what they don't know. And that's Mm -hmm. why you see people who skip ropes and, and who like go out without an AST one even is they just want to ski that cool line. Um, So if they're, if people are actually talking about what the snowpack is like and how they're managing it and describing what goes behind a line, I think that it's really cool to start to see that more and more on social media. And like, I don't know if, um, like you've seen some of that same, same stuff or like have other comments as well.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're in the age of information. Um, it's just yesterday I had somebody comment on one of the reels that I posted on social media and they were commenting on how, you know, in all other sports, people have so much training and practice, but skiers and snowboarders are just out there winging themselves off of things and you know how do more athletes just not get injured and so it was it, it opened up the form of discussion where I was talking to somebody that's not familiar with the snow sports industry and it it definitely developed this dialogue where it's you know it looks like we're doing something you know completely fresh and you can't see what's behind it and how could you know But it's like then you start to talk about the competition side of the world where these athletes are studying pieces of terrain for days, looking at photos, you know, hiking around, flying in helicopters, the movie lines. You know, what you see in the movie is, you know, the 15th line that they worked up to in, you know, however many days studying the snowpack, understanding the terrain, just getting used to or getting ready for that that big event. And, you know, even if you look at any of the stuff that I post online, if there's virgin snow, but it's at the resort, I'm, I'm quite familiar with that line. You know, there's a reason I can duck behind a tree and over a rock to get to some sneaky little piece of terrain that looks awesome on film at a resort. It's just because you know exactly where it is and it's the 15th time you've hit it that year.
0: Yeah, true. I think that's a really good point to make. Um, and how skiing comes off on the outside. Like people think you're just crazy. Like people are like, You hit you hit cliffs? What are you thinking? You're nuts.
3: <laughs> it's actually really funny how like unaware people that aren't in the industry are. Like when I, I remember when I would tell people that don't ski at university that I worked at a heli skiing company, they're like, Holy shits, you're like jumping out of helicopters, at the top of mountains. And I'm like, Uh, no, it's like heli skiing companies can take you on all kinds of terrain. Like some of the terrain you get taken on with guests in a Bell 212 is like literally not, there isn't even enough slope to get speed. It's like a green run. It's people just like, don't really understand, um, the diversity of the sport or the things that do go into it. And I've also seen like when I worked in Japan, for example, a really dangerous example of people not being educated is having like an Australian teenager come in and he's just like, uh, he was like, yeah, I just need like a, can I rent a transceiver? I'm going to go like off the back of Hapa 1, like in Hakuba. And I was like, excuse me? Like, um, you just want to rent a transceiver? It's like, have have you done like Abbey 1, Abbey 2, who are you going with? Like, And he was like, no, I just need a transceiver. I'm fine. And I'm just like, how How is this – how are these things not crossing over? And there's like – in Japan, there's so many deaths every single year because of tourists dipping out of bounds. And there's huge wet slides, like huge wet slides in the spring that are like cement because it slides to bamboo and they get glide cracks and it's just super gnarly. But um, not having access to education or not having it be – a part of like typical media and communications across social media and really showing that that background and educating people does lead to death. And it's also I feel like there's in the past, there's also been this culture of gatekeeping in uh, backcountry skiing. And um, it's nice to start seeing that kind of break down and making it more of an inclusive space because with inclusivity and sharing of information. It just gets safer for everyone. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's really interesting, you know, um, we're talking about skiing Canadian resorts a lot of the time, right? And the way in which you manage a resort in Canada is different than you manage a resort in the States, is different than you manage it in Japan. Education is different. The understanding of the backcountry is different. And, you know, a lot of times in the States, the area boundary is closed to the general public because adjacent terrain is somebody's private property. They own that valley of the mountainsides and you know here in canada we've got crown land right you leave the area boundary it's on your own accord um and i know when i was working patrol it was always an interesting dilemma right uh places like sunshine village offer gates to enter the backcountry in and on one hand as an operator you're like oh so you as an operator saying it is safe to enter the backcountry at this point Where I know in Revelstoke, it's there aren't gates to the backcountry because you can duck a rope to go to the backcountry anywhere you want, but the resort isn't going to take on the liability of saying, here is an open point because that's just a point of liability for a business.
0: Oh, yeah. And um, I can speak to that at, at Lake Louise because... It's Banff National Park as soon as you leave the boundary. And Sunshine Village would be the same, I assume. But I just know how they did it at Louise is the avalanche forecasters and avalanche team. They all start their day earlier than the rest of the patrol. And so they end their day earlier than the rest of patrol. And especially once they're gone, things get kind of dicey with anything that happens outside of the borders. Because you need to leave... If you're a patroller, if you're going to leave the terrain boundary, you need special permission from the avalanche forecaster in order to do so. So we've had people that are down, broken ankle, twisted knee, whatever, and you can literally see them and holler to them from the terrain boundary so you know what's wrong with them. And if they can't crawl to you, we've called in from Banff to get them helicopter long lined out or... Banff Public Safety has to come and deal with them because it's not the resort's job as soon as you leave the boundary. And there are a lot of situations where if the forecaster still there, they can say, yeah, we'll throw on our skins or yeah, we'll go do a lap through there and help that person out. But there's other people who you can literally see them and they have to sit there and wait for the helicopter because the resort's not liable and you put yourself in danger if you leave to get them so you can be that close and still be shit out of luck
3: yeah in in japan they like um i don't remember why but they don't fly helicopters like over a lot of the resorts like they don't do aerial bombing or anything like that um and the liability like if you don't injure yourself If you injure yourself outside of the resort, um, search and rescue, a lot of the times, depending on like how early it is that you call them, they'll tell you to stay overnight. They won't come and get you. Um, so there was like a couple situations, my friend, Mel's ex-boyfriend, he broke his pelvis just outside of the boundary, uh, in Hapa one and they needed help, but they couldn't call to like get help because it would cost them a shit ton of money. One and two ski patrol wasn't going to come and help them. So they were going to have to like set up camp overnight. They couldn't get him back inside the boundary. So they ended up having to like drag him through the forest and like waist deep snow, like attached, but he like, it it was absolutely insane to get him back inside. And then um, I, I had another friend that was uh, going down the other side of HAPO1 because um, his the neighborhood he was living in was kind of like near the bottom of it. This was a completely separate incident, but he got down to the bottom and there was a, this Filipino girl who had like signs of hypothermia, had all of her stuff off, and she'd been sitting there for about four hours and patrol told her to stay overnight and she would have died. It was just like completely different, but people are very like unaware of what's, um, I don't know, It's it, the mountains are dangerous. Mother nature is dangerous.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I first got into backcountry skiing because lift ticket prices were getting expensive and me and my friends said, hey, you know, we can go buy touring equipment, get ourselves some, you know, beacon probe shovel skins take an AST course and instead of going to the resort and buying lift passes, we'll just go ski tour. And it was great because we took the AST course and we learned a little bit. And as soon as you learn a little bit, you realize you, you don't know how much you don't know.
0: You just get scared and you realize you know nothing.
2: Well, JJ has a really good analogy with the AST courses is like you, you tell your analogy about the hammer and nails. Please.
1: I mean, I like it. uh, Smart Education is a tool, right? And so the AST course is like the first tool to backcountry skiing. So you might be given a hammer, but you don't have a nail, right? You don't have a piece of wood that you're working with yet. You don't have a saw. You don't have a tape measure. You don't have a pencil.
2: You can do a lot of damage with a hammer.
1: Yep. You can do a lot of damage (laughs) with a hammer. Um, And then as you, you know, you get into the backcountry and you work with mentors and you start to get more experience. Um, you more know, you, you get more tools. And I mean, with the AST2, they recommend that you have at least a hundred days of backcountry experience with mentors and people so that you start to be familiar with, you know, the avalanche bulletins and you know, you've started thinking about, you know, what's the hazard rating and where are you gonna go, trip planning, that kind of stuff. And then, you know. Even with the AST series, they say, all right, now that you've had about a hundred days and you want to start getting into bigger terrain and larger terrain, think about the AST two. And, you know, from that perspective, you go, Oh, wow, let's let's do the AST two, get a little bit more knowledge, and then now you're actually spending bigger days, you know, I think it's a five or six day course. I can't quite remember.
2: Are you talking about ops? No, AST. Oh, it's two day.
1: No, the AST2 is like, uh, I
0: think it's four or five days.
2: Yeah,
1: four or five days. Yeah. And so, you know, you get multiple days of ski touring in with uh, your guide and all of a sudden you go, wow, I really don't know anything. Hopefully. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, if you want to go the technical route, you can take your operations course and then you're immersed in the science of it and digging pits and learning how to record the data and then, you know, even then, once you have your operation one, you're still kind of pretty low on the totem pole with people that have an education and experience because you're not a forecaster. You don't know how to forecast. You've never been trained to. But at least you can start hanging out in the room with them as they're forecasting and let them be your mentors and just start building your experience.
0: Yeah, and I mentorship is a big thing and in backcountry skiing as you've mentioned and I'm wondering because it can be very very hard to find good mentors and people who are willing to take you under your under their wing like what did that look like for the two of you?
2: JJ's taking the dog outside
0: (laughs) um (laughs) Yeah, for me, like
2: I said, when I took that um, Alpine finishing school with She Jumps, I met the guide there and she was wonderful and she was really uh, gracious with her time and took me touring and took me on some practicums and I was really lucky to be able to have that mentorship. But I think for all of us in the ski industry or otherwise, because I do hear this from my rec- recreationist friends as well, that it's challenging to find folks to go backcountry skiing with. Um you know i think it's just generally important to find people who have aligned goals and objectives right and and it's kind of you know you guys are everybody all of us are developing relationships here so you have you really have to be clear on what are your objectives for the day and i don't mean like where are you going i mean what do you want to get out of the day like are we going out to have a good time to eat our lunch in the sunshine or are we really doing a more complicated mountaineering day i mean i have quite a lot of backcountry experience at this point but there's still some of my dearest friends that i'll tell you go do that mission without me because kim's not fast enough (laughs) or something like that because my uptracking skills are not as strong or fast as my downhilling skills because i still like to downhill so you know my priorities can be a lot different than other folks pillows are found below tree line. It's easier to approach, you know, so, you know, different folks have different um, objectives for the day. And um, it's really important to find those relationships. And then as far as mentorship goes, you know, every operation that I've worked at has a different personality. um, And there's different operational objectives. And there's different ways that we cater to different types of clients. Uh, So when you when you find people that you align with, you know, and you know really quickly. Um, and so I guess we all just have to pounce on those opportunities and hope that our potential mentors are, are gracious with us and then return that favor for other people.
3: Definitely. I think uh, I think finding those people can be hard sometimes. I feel like there's a lot of imposter syndrome um, that happens when people are trying to get into the backcountry. It's like, oh, I'm not good enough to like go with that crew. And that's something that um, – we've actually seen a lot, especially in female spaces. It's kind of like, oh, like I could never ski with them. Like I'm not that good or like I couldn't do this. And then like it kind of limits the opportunity for conversation to break down some of those barriers and like belief systems about yourself and to engage in progression. But um, to find the right people, do you have like off the top of your head? I don't even, even if you could just like spitball it, but what are some good questions to ask a new partner?
1: Well, you know, I'm just going to step back a second here. I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, we had kind of touched on like, you know, how we got our experience or like how we found our mentors. And for me, um, I I would say without patrol, I, I wouldn't have been able to find the proper mentors. Um, and I think it's really interesting, you know, we, we kind of touched on the professional skier and these ski lines and things like that. And when you look at these top tier athletes that are in the movies, you know, going on these crazy expeditions, they're getting great mentorship because there's a guide that's been hired by whomever to take them to these places because, you know, each
2: other as well. Yeah.
1: But I mean, like for the most part, it's been my experience to see a lot of these top tier athletes. Just They don't have the initial skill sets to be on these big lines, you know, assessing the snowpack. They're physically very talented to get down the mountain, but to assess the level of safety and risk. And so, you know, a lot of them get professional help from guides. Um, for me, I got into patrol, so I got daily meetings. You got to hear from industry experts and You'd always have somebody's ear, whether you're in the patrol bump or riding the chairlift. Um, even on a wreck, you'd, you'd get these little snippets of very important wisdom. And then that kind of gave me the biggest tool set of knowing to speak up for myself. So when I am going with people, I think, you know, you talked about the imposter syndrome um, in the female world. I think it's it's almost. It's almost as much so in the, the male world too, because Absolutely. there's just so much ego and testosterone. And It's like, well, that person's really, really talented at skiing pillows or jumping off the of cliffs. And uh, so they must know. And then, you know, you raise one question of, yeah, I got a little bit of concern about this. The sun's starting to come out, the wind's up. This is the aspect that's been reactive. If you looked at all the main reports, um, oh yeah good, good point. Um, Maybe we shouldn't ski this. Well, if I, if I hadn't brought that up, would we have skied it? Likely. And it's, it's, you know, not knowing what you don't know is what can get you into trouble. And so by questioning things and I, you know, it can can be a little bit tedious at times when people question everything, but at the same time, you know, it's the amount of times somebody's asked 15 tedious questions to get to a 16th that was very relevant is great
0: I am definitely like sometimes that tedious person but I also just like the group to take a minute and I'm not very fast on the uphill I am also more for the down although I don't ski as pretty as Kim does <laughs> And mm-hmm. I end up being a lot of times the last person. And I, I know Tori's in this boat too, where we're like the last person to the discussion of where we're gonna go next and how we're gonna get there. And
3: I Will
2: sometimes not I sleep. don't even
3: make the discussion because I'm so far behind. And then I get there and I'm just like, well shit. All right. And I get like a hardcore fucky wait. And then like, but I make a point to ask what the plan
0: is so that I can still put my input into it. And it took me a while to get to that point because when I first started ski touring, I just felt like I was kind of along for the ride. And Mm -hmm. now I still don't know a lot of things, but at least I can raise my concerns because ultimately everybody has to be okay with where you're going and everyone has to know how you're going to get there. And one thing that I really appreciated about touring with you two is that we all swapped who was breaking trail and there are... Like, really, up to that point in my ski back to backcountry skiing career, I had hardly broken any trail because no one ever allowed me to do it since Mm -hmm. I was almost always the slowest one. I would be like JJ was saying skiing with these people who are really, really strong skiers. So, you kind of like trust them in ways that you shouldn't, but then I would end up at the back because they're way more fit than me.
2: I think there's also this illusion that you can ski your way to ski your way out of a problem, but you know, an emergency by definition is a loss of control. So if you're in control of the situation, you're not in an emergency, you're not in an accident, right? And so when these sorts of things come up, it's like, it doesn't matter who you think you are. The avalanche has no idea, <laughs> right? And and that can get us all into trouble. And we have a tendency to reason our way through these emergency situations that really we have no... Um, control over. And then the snow doesn't give us the negative feedback that we deserve sometimes. So we get away with it a lot of days that we're out there on snow and we have no idea how narrowly we might've avoided an accident in a day. Um, So, you know, like, to be honest, I don't actually like to focus on all the doom and gloom of it all because we are super lucky to be able to be in mountain spaces. I think we have a lot of, there's a lot of freedom in that, and so to access even more freedom in those spaces, I think the education is the tool that we need in order to make good decisions and come home at the end of the day. Cause it's just really not fun and not worth it. If something happens where you don't come, you don't get to come home according to plan.
1: You, you know, one of the biggest skills I've I've learned is from being adjacent to Kim Um when she first started her guiding career, she was tail guiding out at Monashie powder cats. And I got to sit in the, basically the meetings when I went out and visited. So I got to sit in the morning meeting because at the time I was a ski patroller. So, Hey, this, this person knows a little bit of information about what's going on. And guests
2: come in sometimes too.
1: And, you know, they're not going to be a burden as you're actually getting down to business. But what, What was really interesting to me was for the first time seeing, you know, they have an AM meeting where you talk about what you're hoping to do in the day, what the risks are, blah, blah, blah. Then you go out and ski with guests. But the PM meeting is really, really interesting. And it's something that it just doesn't happen enough in outside the professional side of the industry, which is you come down from your objective. Everybody's high fiving, you know, having a cocktail in the back of the truck. Um, Because, wow, what a great day of powder skiing and nothing went wrong. But the PM meeting kind of breaks that down and allows you to, like, build on the skill set of assessing your decisions. Because, you know, in the morning you say, I think we're going to see this on these aspects and these elevations. And we're hoping to ski this. But depending on what the winds are, the humidity and whatever else, maybe we'll see that or maybe we won't. And in the evening, you get to come down and go, we thought we would see that, did we? If we did, what was it like? If we didn't, why didn't we see it? And you start to question every little aspect of your day. And if you start doing that enough in your regular process, you actually become very critical about what you end up doing even during the day. You know, you realize, hey, that temperature just spiked or the wind just uh, changed directions um oh the snowpack's a little bit thinner here and all those little observations are just built off a of practice of like and it's based off of this idea of this pm meeting where you go back and you say what's the riskiest thing we did today like did we see what we thought we'd see
2: i'm over here laughing because it makes it sound so tedious and it makes it sort of sound like we just suck all the fun out of it but that's what's super interesting and like what's going on in a lead guide's head in a day is not what you think. (laughs) It's not about sniffing pow. it's about staying safe. And, uh, there's a lot of sort of factors at play that go into that. So to me, you know, getting into ski guiding has also uh, been the intellectual stimulation that I've been looking for. A lot of folks, when I first moved to Revelstoke said, like, how do you just ski every day? Right. And I mean, there's enough going on in my head about that too, but, uh, ski guiding has given it a a little bit of a a different lens to look at how we conduct ourselves in the mountains. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun to learn.
0: Well, and you guys also know how to have fun on skis. And I think that like leads well into just like quickly talking about the project you guys did last year, you put out a little short video and I don't know how to pronounce this word. So can you just say it for me? Turn the sound on when you listen. I did, but I still feel like I'm like reading it.
1: <laughs> so, um, the project is called Neon. I
0: know what it means. <laughs> yeah. So, it's like being a kid and having a good time is it like the
1: retention of childish ultimately. traits into adulthood.
0: There you go. That's the exact <laughs> definition. I just had the like too, too long didn't read, like, ultimately, like, skiing is fun. Yeah. And, I know we both- and like, like you said, Kim, like, You try not to focus too much on the doom and gloom because ultimately, like skiing is just a really good time. And as much as we're going to do it safely, we're also just going to have fun with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And well, JJ and I
2: both have experienced trauma in the mountains and we've had some dark days, right? And so it really puts it in perspective. I know from, I'm not going to speak for JJ, but from my own, um, recovery process. I mean, I had ample opportunity to quit skiing and I couldn't quit it. (laughs) So if I'm not going to quit it, I might as well have fun doing it. Right. So like realizing how lucky we are and realizing the opportunity that we have to have a lot of fun and do some pretty unique and special things in the mountains. um, It kind of gives you like a refreshed perspective on how to get up and do it every day um, and spend hundreds of days in the mountains.
0: Yeah, I love that you just said that because that's something I'm really passionate about and in recovering from my own trauma in the mountains is figuring out how to love skiing again and what that looks like and and that I could find skiing in a different way. And that's a story that I plan on telling this year. So we'll see how it goes. But um, I like that that alert. low key was like <laughs> part of what came like, would you say that that's, like, part of, like, what brought you the idea? Or, like, what what made you come to Neoteny? Did I say it right?
1: Neoteny. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, full disclosure, I know we're coming up on the hour mark here. And I don't know what you guys have for time. Um, but it is, it, it is actually a pretty in-depth little story. Um, Technica Blizzard... Um, was gracious enough to really love what we were doing and they reached out and said hey we've got some budget for you guys to do a project and this was like the first time any ski company was going to give us a project so we started spitballing ideas we've got actually the post-it notes are still up on the board there from like our very first brainstorm session and basically we're like awesome let's let's make this happen so We orchestrated a a heli bump with us two and two videographers and a photographer um, to basically get up into the prime train right away. And then just so we could have an entire day of filming. And we got an amazing day of filming. You know, the heli landed. It was kind of clagged in. The heli takes off. It's dead quiet. The clouds part, and we've got just rays of sunshine on spine lines and pillows, and snow sparkles and snow tornado or like sparkle tornadoes everywhere around us. It's like wow, this is like an epic day, and we we had such an amazing day. Great light, um, and got so much footage out of the day. And then basically came down the mountain, came back to the house, and a couple days later, um, I had gotten the notification that, um, well, I I got a call at early early in the morning that uh, my sister um, had found a brain tumor in her um, in her brain, <laughs> and uh, and things basically got derailed there. We we the project got shelved, and I had to go take care of family matters and. Uh, basically 24 days later, she passed away. So, um, we went to really dark times for a really long time. And by the time we were able to restart the project, you know, a year and a bit had passed COVID had come, um, all of a sudden the footage is still great footage, but the gear is going to start getting dated. The outerwear is going to start getting dated. Like there, there, there starts to be kind of a a loss of investment. Like if you don't get it out, if you don't get something out right away, it's uh, almost no longer relevant, even though it's amazing footage. And so we kind of paired this idea of the greatest day you've ever had with some of the worst times you ever had. And we just looked at basically what we had in the footage and we said, we're not gonna really try and go and recreate new footage or new anything yet. Like We're just gonna make something out of this. And so we went back to our storyboard. And all of a sudden, you know, whittling things down, whittling things down, this this idea of playing became very present. And it almost was serendipitous to be like, there's this moment in time where we need to remember to play because life can get dark real quick.
0: Thanks for telling us that story. Um, I'm I'm glad that you told the whole thing because I don't, I'm not too worried about about the time there. I'm really sorry about your sister. I also just lost someone that was close to me from brain cancer, so like I that's just so tough. Um, and my condolences there. But I I do think it's really important to talk about what comes into that because it's not as simple as just saying oh skiing is just really fun like there's a lot of life stuff that happens behind it and the way that we find skiing through those events or whether skiing like gets us through them or it's just that like one constant thing in the background I love when things have like that aspect of storytelling and like that deeper meaning to it like your story does now that I know the whole story I just that it's it's really touching that that comes through you know
2: we really tried uh, um JJ's sister Christy was one of my best friends as well um and and yeah that was a really really challenging time for us because you know the sun was still shining and the birds were still chirping and it was actually still ski season and JJ packed up and moved to Toronto so he could be there with her um I went and did a guide exam and she ended up passing out or passing away in the middle of that guide exam for me. And so struggled with finishing that. So we had a lot going on. And uh, when it all kind of came back full circle and we were looking at putting this footage together, we thought about, you know, what was going on in our lives and what does this really represent? And it was really challenging to think about letting go of that footage and not using it because to us, it was just like. Wow, you know, that was such a fun day and the light was so good and so many factors there were just so, you know, things had really aligned. Um, and then to honor Christy's memory, we tried to sort of put a story together that touched on that aspect of her her life, her death but then it you know it inherently gets dark and it's hard because you can feel really positive about a human being and and you know want to represent them in a really positive way so the concept that we came up with had more to do with with honoring the fact that Christy appreciated that we went and played in our lives and we had this aspect of our lives that was more like jovial and free right and so we were really trying to Tell that story without telling the other part that makes I'm crying right now talking about it. (laughs) Oh,
0: like I guess like you smiling right, like you can do yeah, you can do both. But having a day, the way that you guys describe it too, is like so it's so magical and it contrasts those darker moments where like it it kind of sounds to me like that that magical day and how awesome it was and like how close that, that day sits to your guys's hearts in that year that you had is like, that's the contrast. And that's like, what, what keeps you going and like what gives you the motivation to keep seeking out those moments and keep living your life. And like, that's probably by the sounds of who she was, like exactly what she would want you guys to be doing. And that's, that's what you're trying to say in the video totally right did i get it
1: (laughs) well and you know and it's you know there's there's enough kind of ski porn out in the world that it was how do you create something different that captures people attention people's attention um but at the same time you know people are there for the skiing
0: Yeah I mean people are there for skiing but I also I've said this a million times this year is that ski porn is always going to have its place and we're always going to love ski porn mm-hmm. and I, I finally went to an MSP movie again after I didn't watch like TGR MSP for a couple years just because I personally my own skiing just wasn't interested in it and I just yearned for these stories and these real life experiences. And I felt like just putting skiing on this giant pedestal and saying that it solves all of its problem, all your problems was not what I wanted to see anymore because it wasn't how I felt about my own life. And as much as I still love skiing, I just needed more out of it. Mm-hmm. So learning it's awesome
2: to see athletes
0: do athletic things, right? Like, of course, oh, we're driving yeah. towards that. And like, that's why ski porn yeah. is always going to have its place. Like people are oh, always yeah. going to want to watch it. And that's not what this is about. Like, it's it's approachable, aesthetic,
2: beautiful pow skiing with sunshine and sparkles and a cool little narrative. And, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to watch this short and not want to go ski what we were skiing that day, right? So,
0: we want to share that. <laughs> oh, definitely. It looks amazing. And you both ski it very well. So... <laughs> Thanks. it, it still you. has it's still really great skiing to watch but I just like it like ultimately it gets that emotion of like I want to go do that um while still and having I, like a little bit more emotion behind it
2: and I think that's what we're all here for right because at the end of the day like skiing as a construct it's pretty obscure that we're all like chasing this thing but like for me when it comes to free riding when it comes to guiding all of that sort of thing like it really um It really, it it checks a lot of boxes for the things that I'm looking at, looking for out of life. Um, I'm, I am really glad to have a healthy body to be able to go out there and do those things. Um, We talked about that like playful aspect of, of our existence and whether you're a skier, but by definition, if you identify as a skier or if you're someone that spends most of the time not outside or not outdoors, it's still really important to go outside. Well, I mean, go outside is great, but regardless to have that sort of like moment in your life where you're not taking yourself so seriously. Right. And so I think outdoor sports in general, skiing and anything else, it just sort of puts you in that in the moment where you can connect with nature, with other people and sort of forget about all the other human constructs that we deal with on a day to day basis. So yeah, I mean, that part's super important. It's not just about snow and hucking
0: your meat and all that sort of stuff. As much as those things are still fun. <laughs>
2: they are fun. They're
0: fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I, It just like makes everything even more heartfelt to hear all of the struggle. And I think it's just like, I really like, having these discussions about the hard thing because as hard as it is to talk about some of these darker moments that we have in our lives and the loss and grief, etc., cetera, they're real human emotions. And so much in the industry, we just shove those down and shove them down and shove them down. But it's relatable. Like people have these experiences in their lives and we turn to skiing throughout it all, whether it helps or whether it doesn't. And just being able to like kind of openly, talk about some of the things that we're experiencing and how we relate skiing to those things, I think is helpful as a whole. And then I guess as we wind things down, it's your time to do any plugs, any brands you want to shout out to um, dog intros that we want to do. I don't know your time, do whatever you want. (laughs) You want to go? I think Renee really wants us to introduce
2: our dogs. Y'all heard from our dogs. This is, this is Huck and that is Taka. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, we are so blessed to have the support of Technica Blizzard. They are our number one supporters and we absolutely adore working with them and the opportunities that they can um, share with us. So yeah, they're sweet. What else you got?
1: I mean, follow JJ underscore Vinette on know. Instagram.
2: Content creator extraordinaire. Um, yeah. That's but no, the no, plugs he... we're after. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and thanks so If much. you want to see, sorry, I've interrupted you. If you want to see JJ ski all his secret lines on a pow day. Instagram. Yeah, he's
2: blowing up our zones big time.
1: Uh, you know what? It's funny that it's, I'm blowing up zones because I went up to the hill today Um We haven't had any snow in a minute, Um, a little bit of wind distribution, kind of making some things smooth. And I got a couple of really good lines in, in plain sight and bumped into a couple of people on the walking track that were like, Hey, you're that guy from Instagram that I follow. And I was like, Oh, yeah," like you post really good lines every day. I was like, well, check in tonight. I've got a good one already in the bag. (laughs) So
0: if you're not skiing, pal, what are you doing? Right. The local secrets. Okay, Kim, sorry I interrupted you.
2: No, you know, you said thanks for telling that story, but thanks for allowing us to tell that story because it's pretty cool. Like, I mean, it's not necessarily part of the movie that we put together, but, you know, it's always interesting to understand what drives people's passions and motivations, so.
1: Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, you know, again, you kind of taking the time. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that, you know, I'm able to do in the mountains is in part due to my sponsors. So, you know, Tectica, Blizzard, Dakine, Grass Sticks, Sun God Eyewear, Burn Helmets, uh, Rebel Stoke Mountain Resort. Uh, I think I said, uh, Dakine Outerwear and packs. um, you know, Monashy Spirits is a local cocktail place in town that helps me get by. Um, but yeah, it's, all of those all of those brands really do help kind of support us keeping doing what we're doing. And then Kim. The dogs don't agree, I guess.
2: Gotta make that kibble money, am I right? <laughs> they got things to do,
0: you know. Yeah, Thank you think. so much for coming on and talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: somebody's here. Th- Perfect timing. <laughs> I think Taka and Huck have decided that we are done.
1: Yeah. yeah they're
2: finished. They've had enough. They only sit for an hour. All good. They're like,
3: mom, dad, shut up.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having us, <laughs> <this
2: day>.
3: <laughs> Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it.